Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. The word enemy brings many things to mind. We imagine what we will do to our enemies. But when do we stop thinking about them? David Metzenthon's new novel, Dreaming the Enemy, addresses this question. So, David, welcome back to 3CR. I'm, I'm glad to be here, mate. Look, I'm just trying to recall what novel it was. Jarvis that... 24, maybe. Ah, I think, about a guy. <laughs> that was the last novel I yeah, interviewed yeah, yeah, yeah. about. Oh, actually, there was another one in between, wasn't it? Tigerfish. No, no it was Might Tigerfish. Tigerfish. That's Fish. what I interviewed yeah. one you One set about. in the east of Melbourne, one set in the west. Oh, that's... Oh, now it's all coming back to yeah. mind. It's all... I've got it. But the setting of this novel is not Melbourne necessarily. This is an interesting one. We are in the, shall I say, Vietnam War, as the Vietnamese call it, the American War. What was the impetus behind writing about that conflict? Well, I wasn't terribly interested in the conflict at the start until I started to look at photographs. And um, I was looking at a photograph of some Aussies who had fought in the Battle of Long Tan, which is not a battle I know much about. But the day after, it, or the couple of days after, they were presented by the South Vietnamese government for their great service in this battle, which we won. They were presented with commemorative dolls in boxes. Dolls, which seemed odd but it was due to some kind of protocol. But that struck me as odd, but what really struck me was like, these soldiers look like my son is now. They're 19, they're boys. They're not boys, they're, they're men, obviously. Courageous guys. And I thought, uh, this story is, I should, someone should go there and have another look at this, like a fiction writer. There's a lot of great non-fiction. And then the more photos I looked at, at these Australian guys and I'm going, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I'll have a go at it. I mean, I'll, you know, I'd look at my son who's 19 and I would look. There's a photo of um, a digger on a track and I've recreated that scene in my book. But they're under fire and it's this enclosed track and it's like these tangled undergrowth. No, you can't see into it, you can't move through it. And there's a guy standing in a track and he's got, a, got his rifle, which would be an SLR. There's, a, there's an Australian soldier on the ground and they just, they just seem not to know where this fire's coming from. And there's all this amazing footage and photos of these blokes. And I thought, well, I haven't been in the, in the war and I haven't been in the army, but I am a fiction writer and I'm on, I'm on the side of these guys and I want to try and put out a philosophical interpretation of what they might have gone through. Well, this raises some interesting questions. First and foremost, um, you tend to write for that young, well, adolescent, the 18, 19-year-old, tends to be your focus when you put a, your protagonist into a story. Is yeah, oh, well, I just wrote a, a little book a couple of years ago called Free to the Free Range Chook, which was... <laughs> For a slightly, slightly younger slightly uh, crew. different. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, that, yeah. Just, that just struck me. But then the other question then, of course, is as a writer uh, who has never been 
to war because you and I are of mm. the same generation. Uh, I won't say how old we actually are, but we haven't actually experienced the war. But if I may, I'm just going to read something. Our character is Johnny Shoebridge, um, but this sort of gives you an indication of what he's going through. You can never go back. Shuey had heard that said a lot, but it was bullshit. He couldn't stop going back. That was the problem. There was nothing that could be unseen or undone, but that did not stop him revisiting the battlefields again and again. And everything from the simple to the brutal was there to be relived. The touch of a ponytail of a dead female fighter was seared like a brand on his brain. The afternoon Lex tie-dyed Barry's army shirt pink was there, as was the evening Barry machine-gunned Lex's bamboo flute, the morning they saved a pup from a Vietnamese butcher, the cool click and cold glint of new ammo, the dark grace of an oiled weapon, the long shot that hit a distant head, the frightful scream from a deep, black valley that no one was ever going to investigate. It was the complete catalogue of chaos, carnage and beauty, every moment perfectly preserved, then pinned on the page like rare dead insects, most poisonous, a few perfect. I mean, you're going into a... Hey, that was well read, mate. That was really nice. Good job. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll be your escort into schools when, you know, doing, doing uh. readings and things like that. But here we go. You've got Johnny Shoebridge um, going... Or in here, he's recollecting what he's been through. How were you able to put yourself into that situation to effectively recall Johnny's memories? Well, I guess I am in a... I kind of live in a strange, looking out the window, imaginative world. But there's so much fantastic non-fiction there and there's so many anecdotes. And I can remember, and I don't want to... Um, I was reading about one Australian-Vietnam veteran and he came back and I might... I might, But this is... He said, I was fine when I came back. I was pretty good. And he said, I think I, he was driving along and then he had this image. He was driving in the fog, I think. And I really... I drew on this for the whole book. He said... I just had this image and he said, I, I, I had sort of forgotten it, but this guy, an enemy soldier, had risen out of the mist and he had an AK-47 and he had a bayonet, which was unusual. And he said this bayonet kind of became the focus, this, this image of this. He said he didn't even shoot at me, but he goes, until I started to deal with that image, and I've used that image um, of this, this AKM bayonet. I guess me and my grandfather was in the first war. The old man was in the second. But it's it's if you care enough about, I suppose, what happens to other people, and I do have theories of my own. I'm not a psychologist, a psychiatrist, but when you go through really harsh experiences, and especially when in Vietnam where they patrolled a lot, your, your hardwiring changes. Your responses actually have to change, and so everything else drops away apart from survival and. You know, if we've all been in, like, say, a fight or road rage or, or, a, or a conflict, you realise, man, you know, it doesn't go away two days later. You know, I think there was a famous Australian poet, I won't name him, really famous, and he said, I was walking down a country uh, street where I lived and I ran into this guy and I remembered he was the guy who used to pick on me at school like 30 years ago and he said, down, and that, and that, that resulted me in having a breakdown. Because he said it all came back, hmm. you know. So, you know, I I guess I just want to try and put out a philosophical fictional view in the hope that it goes some way to explaining about people that I care about and 
you know, want to take their corner. But here's a question then in terms of um, an author. Is it legitimate for authors to place themselves in the situation of a soldier and write about it? Or how did you manage to write about it effectively? Well, it has to be legitimate for fiction writers to write what they think they can present in a reasonable manner. And it's up to the reader to see whether that rings true or doesn't. But if we didn't, you know, I'm just going to write about myself. Jesus, that's going to sell. It's going to be of no interest to me particularly. It's going to be of even less interest to anybody else. I mean, I'm just reading um, a really great novel called Miss Miller's Feeling for Snow, which is a Scandinavian book, and it's fantastically written. It's really good. But it's a bit dodgy. To my mind, it feels funny because it's, it has a female protagonist and it's written by a bloke, which is not something... I would ever do now. But, you know, Francis Ford Coppola didn't go to Vietnam. Um, Robert De Niro didn't. So, But they made these big statements. You know, Graham Kennedy was the star of One Angry Shot, which is the movie which Australian diggers rate the best about the Vietnam War. Mm. So you've got Graham, who is a thespian, gay, a comedian. You've got Brian Brown. These guys have never been in the army mm. or been in the war. Yet the diggers liked it and so maybe but it maybe I'm putting something to add to that. But it becomes important. I mean, authors have a responsibility in many ways to imagine and use their imagination, but also so does the reader to actually envisage what it would be like because that informs mm. them, that keeps them aware mm. uh, in, in many ways. But how did you get the detail, the information, what were your sources? Oh, I just read and read and read and I looked at photos and I spoke to various people who'd been to Vietnam. I looked at their websites, um, five Royal Australian Regiment. They, they, their doctor, <laughs> Dr White, I think, he made some like Super 8 movies. Of, and, you know, like, well, if it wasn't enough to be in a battle zone and like in firefights, he's like shooting stuff on Super 8 and... I spoke to a few guys. There's a wealth of stories. The photographs are really important. I did speak to an American um, guy online who had flown Phantoms, F-18 fighter bombers. And I said, you know, you flew a lot of missions. I said, what did you think when you looked down at the landscape, you know, all the folds of the mountains and the rivers and the jungle? Did, what, what, what did you kind of think about this country that you were flying over and bombing? And he goes, wow, that's a good question. He said, never thought of it at all. Really? Yeah. So I just mission, mate. I just I'm just looking at coordinates. In terms then of talking to uh, return vets, how did that go? Because often they're reluctant to talk to people who haven't been through the same experience. Doesn't go very well, um, because I'm not pushy in that regard, and a lot of those guys. It was like when I was trying to write a book about wharfies. You know, someone would say, oh, you speak to my dad and I'd ring him up. He'd go, oh, you're a writer, mate. He goes, oh, yeah, I've got nothing to say. Um, it was more imaginative than getting information on certain conflicts. You know, Gary McRae documented a lot of battles um, that he was personally involved in. Paul Ham's History of Vietnam is fantastic. Um, there's all sorts of stuff on the net if you want to look up weapons or the sort of things that were done. But again and again, I went back to photos and because I have used to, when I was young, shoot, you know, I've had guns and firearms and, and I, I fish and I'm, I really like the bush. And 
I haven't even been to Vietnam. But when you, you look and you can imagine, because when, when I was hunting, and I was only hunting rabbits, you know, you go into this kind of hunting mode. So I could only then extrapolate what it would be like if someone was going to shoot at you and, you know, how that would feel. And then because once you know that people are shooting at you, you can probably flip the, the switch pretty quick and go, well, I'm shooting back. But here's the other thing. You've imagined it from Johnny Shoebridge's perspective, a conscript, and we might come back to that point about conscription in Australia. But the other thing you've done in this novel is actually look at it from the Vietnamese perspective. How are you able to do that and what are you achieving by doing that? Well, it was, again, you know, I guess people have more in common, of course, you know, whether you're Vietnamese or Australian, then we have dissimilarities. And I think there's a line in the book that says, well, you know, Johnny goes, well, mate, even though the government might, might want to know and even though I might not want to admit it, I know you're human. You know, that you are. It's, it's, so I just set up this situation. I knew that, you know, the peasant army was raised from the north. They walked down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. They subsisted on rice and they, 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 they lived close to the earth. But I, um, I had this photo. I got this book from America, and it's written by this guy, and they're kind of very simple books about the war. And it, this photo was um, of this North Vietnamese unit, probably 30 guys, and there's these three young guys at the front. And I just use them. I go, they're real, you know. I said, oh, he, like, one's like, like a square head, really muscly, the other one's like, you know, um, you know, like a really slender Vietnamese guy. And then there's this young guy who looks like a Boy Scout. You know, he's really young. And they're there and they're fighting. And it again, in the book, there's a huge difference, I suppose, when you fight for your own land against an invader than when you're shipped in to fight for something which, you know, boy from, let's say, Ararat, who's conscripted, who's been at Ararat High, and... You know, what, what, how was he getting his head around such a complex political situation which was still misunderstood now or not understood? And then it all comes to, a, you know, they go to Paris and sign a piece of paper. You go, oh, and it's all over. It doesn't seem like a great thing that we did. And then when they came back, you know, they weren't particularly, they weren't, you know, there were welcome back parades and not everyone was vilified, but there was enough feeling and I think it's still persistent let's not talk about that you know bad luck that you guys went and that you suffered but geez you know it was a mess and everyone admits it and what did we but one thing I took out of that reading about Australians pretty much whatever they were tasked to do there whether it was go and fight set ambushes go and move villages to another place administer medicines build schools look after their mates at they, they would get the orders and they would, to the best of their ability, in a fair and reasonable manner, they carried it out. And, you know, they were, they were a great fighting force in a, a completely confusing battle, you know, on the Western Front in World War One, Like, you knew what was going on. You knew the bad mm. guys were 150 metres over there. And there was no, no grey areas, but in Vietnam... Things morphed. People were villages one day. It was very complex. And enemies 
the next. You're listening to uh, Published or Not on 3CR. I'm talking to David Metzenthon about his latest novel, Dreaming the Enemy. But this whole notion of how we view the so-called enemy, and one of the reasons why I said the Vietnam War and the American War, looking at things from the alternative perspective. Because often, as a reader, we say, well, they're the enemy, everything's black and white, uh, we know. But what Johnny Shoebridge does in this story is he's, in many ways, dreaming and living with the enemy, imagining what the enemy, and Khan is the name of the enemy here, uh, would do in a firefight. You're also seeing it, or there's a particular firefight uh, sort of two-thirds of the way through the book, which you tell from both sides. But also, when Johnny gets home, he's imagining what Khan would be doing now. So from a number of perspectives, this challenges the reader was that your intention? Yeah, you know, again, I come back to, you know, we know the Vietnamese fighters were human and we know that they were, you know, there was a, they were raised, many of them were raised, you know, battalions were raised in the north. And it was, a, it was a fact that they went so far down south to try and unite their country, that's what their idea was, that no news would ever get home of what happened to them. If, if they just disappeared, you might never know. Some of them weren't even paid, I don't think. And because... You know, you have when when your hard wiring changes and you're obsessed by something and you're totally caught up in it. You know, Johnny's imagination, like everyone's imagination, can be an incredibly strong tool. And in the way he he uses it, or I used it, to hopefully get to a point of acceptance of it's. You know, he says at one point he doesn't know how things turned out for the other guy, but he says, well. I, I hope things are like I hope they are, meaning, you know, maybe he goes back to his life, maybe I go back to mine, and that's how it should be. You know, we were enemies then, we're not enemies now. Um, you know, he keeps saying, I would have killed the guy. He would have killed me. There's no problem there. But after it, he sort of, he feels that maybe through some acceptance that it might help him as well, you know. He tries to get to a point. But you're living so close uh, with the enemy, shall we say, in battle because you've got to imagine what they are going to do. Mm. You can't stop that when you come yeah. mm. home in many ways. It, must, it must, must take an awful amount of courage or to, to actually try, exactly as you say, guys that you... Maybe you don't hate them, but you're going to kill them anyway because that's the nature of the business. But then to try and flip the switch back and go, they're human beings, you know, their sons, their daughters. There's some really good books written from the other side. I read a book called The Sorrow of War by Bao Nim, which is a very famous book, and it opens where he's collecting the remains of dead soldiers. And he was in a battalion that was it didn't start out to be known as the unlucky battalion, but that's what it ended up being called. Out of, like, you know, 800 guys who joined up, he was the only survivor. It's a true story. And he's working in uh, in a jungle which had been where, where his battalion had fought with the Americans. And it, he the Vietnamese called it the Jungle of the Screaming Souls. They'd been annihilated, basically. And his job was to pick up these old remains of bodies and put them in the back of a Russian Zill truck and that's also where he slept 
on a hammock in the back of this truck. So he was as kind of crazed and deranged by what he'd gone through as our guys. There was also, there's also a really interesting book written. It was a diary by a young, newly qualified doctor who worked in the tunnel systems because they had hospitals underground. And she was quite middle class. And she wrote this fantastic diary about this guy that she loved who was a soldier and her work in the tunnels and what she thought of the Americans. And in the end, she was killed by the Americans. She was just walking down a path with two gorillas. She was unarmed, but she was killed. And they took her diary and it was actually translated in America among, it was like 20 tons. And, and she said the Communist Party in her diary, she said, they didn't think she was a really good person. They thought she was bourgeois. She, they, they, they just... They couldn't demand enough from her, which she tried to constantly give. And, you know, if you can't be moved by this, who's of, of, a, of a young woman who's a doctor tending to her own people, and she really loves this guy who comes in eventually and he's kind of changed. Um, but th that book became a book due to the work of an American colonel who was going through it, his translator, he said, what? He said to the translator, what's that? And the guy said, it's this diary. So they had it printed. I think they shipped it back to Vietnam and gave it to this girl's parents. I th it, they got involved. So, you know, it, it's really interesting. But, yeah, the consequences for those um, returning home, etc. you've got Johnny Shoebridge in the country and um, he's basically in a country paddock. A forested hill shrugged off Malcolm's fences to rise from the shoulders of green paddocks. Shuey decided to climb the thing and pocketed Smoke's lighter and a bar of chocolate. Filling his water bottle from the tank, he felt a familiar sense of excitement. There was even the dark flutter of fear as his body automatically prepared and programmed for patrolling. Oh, war's over, idiot. Johnny laughed, but it was only a short laugh. What was happening to him was weird and alarming. He was sweating, yet he hadn't taken a step. His hands shook as he scanned the paddocks. His nostrils flared as they drew in air. His ears sorted sounds in microseconds. No enemy here, you bloody dingbat. He banged a fist into his chest. Snap out of it, you dopey bastard. Johnny strode away from the hut, standing straight, barging through blackberry canes that grew on either side of the path. It felt as if he was driving a fully loaded truck with no brakes. The inlet on his left and the farmland on his right overloaded him with input that screamed, assess, assess, assess. He's living psychologically with, yeah. the, as you say, the programming that he's yeah, gone through. All the, all the triggers, I would imagine, when guys are heavily trained, especially when it's been reinforced by being for 12 months in the jungle. I, 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 I read an anecdote about one guy who came back from the Vietnam War and he joined the police force. And I think he was in Adelaide. And he kind of told it as a joke, but he said his mates on the police force, they knew he was a bit twitchy, you know, they knew he was. And just to see how kind of twitchy he was... They threw a few firecrackers near him when he was standing. He said, I couldn't believe it. He goes, like, the next thing I know, I'm under the police car. And he said it had a clearance of about six inches. He said, I don't know how I got under there. He goes, it was just like a... It was just like a hmm. just and there are so many sounds. I mean, I was just walking to the station this morning, coming here, and there was a building site, and they've got their air guns going. If you've been in Jack a conflict... Hammers. Yeah, if you've mm. been in a conflict situation... Mm. All of those sounds are going to remind mm. you of what you've been through. But here's the other challenge then that uh, a lot of return servicemen had to go through. Here's uh, Johnny Shoebridge visiting uh, the family of uh, his best 
mate uh, Lex from the Lexington family. Hey, he said, realising she was definitely what his mother would have described as lovely. Uh, I hope I've got the right house. I'm looking for the um, Lexingtons. The girl was lightly tanned and freckled. She had long hair that brushed her arms and was, Johnny decided, certainly attractive in a gentle, lyrical, musical way. Yes, you've got the right house, she smiled, perhaps a little puzzled. I'm Francesca. It was the right place. Johnny's throat tightened. I'm Johnny Shoebridge. He spoke as if he was quite sure that this was the case and that he knew exactly who he was and what he was doing here on her doorstep. I knew Lex. We were mates in the... um, over there, in Vietnam. For a long moment, the girl searched his face. For what? Johnny didn't know, but as she was Lex's sister and Lex was his best mate, he waited and would have waited for hours until she was finished. You're Johnny Shoebridge. He inclined his head. I am, yeah. He managed to skim up a fleeting grin. I I believe, yeah, (laughs) at last sighting. You've driven all the way down from the country to here. The girl blinked tears building in dark eyelashes until they spilled. And still she held the door, staring at him. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming. I'm so glad to see you. Well, good. Johnny managed to smile and managed not to reach for his smokes, just. He didn't know what to make of the silences, the words spoken, or whether his presence had created a kind of happiness or only more devastation. I wanted to see you, you and your family, your mum and dad, Tell you things about Lex, how good he was, what a great bloke, how it kind of was, that sort of thing. Did he know how it was? Yes, he did. It was beyond bloody terrible, but Lex was far away and above all that stuff now. Francesca Lexington stepped forward and hugged Johnny, pressing her wet cheek to his shoulder. Johnny felt something steady and settle. He put his arms around her. She understood something and so did he. She knew where he'd been and what he'd been through, or she understood because she knew the truth, and the truth marooned them, each on some lost, lonely island of their own. (laughs) You know, when, you know, my grandfather was in the First War, which he didn't speak about hardly at all, but when you see photos of, you know, like, like, at the end of the day, you know, like, people burying, you know, your best friends or guys you're with... And then the families, you know, it's 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 beyond sort of you know what what a, a brown bear should have to put up with. But I, it's all it was it's it's really you know it was me. It was like if I think I can do this story with integrity, I want to kind of deliver it because there's a crew of young people who there isn't a lot of Australian fiction written about the Vietnam War, and maybe fiction can present things in a different way. There's great non-fiction, but. Yeah, well, I, it, I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to have a shot at it. I, I, I think it's these, so important. These stories are yet to come out, and I think there is a whole range of stories. The conscripts, we had somebody in uh, last month or so, uh, her biography of her family, a daughter who really never got to know her father, who was conscripted. There is what uh, the conscripts went through, the aftermath. So there are a whole range of stories, but it takes several generations in many ways for them to come out the ability then for an author to tell them authentically uh etc but what strikes home for me in many ways is the opening um because you and i uh david are of a similar age 
They played a samurai all summer holidays, Johnny remembered, like the show on TV, long sticks for swords, short sticks for star knives, and that Aboriginal kid, (laughs) David, who was staying at someone's house for a month, played the game harder than anybody else. Jesus, that old Davy boy was fierce, Johnny almost (laughs) smiled, and he always insisted on being Shintaro, the good guy. I can remember (laughs) Shintaro and the samurai. Oh, yeah. But these... They were of that generation. They were playing games one minute and the next, as you say, 19-year-olds, bang, they were in a firefight and it yeah, yeah. changed their lives forever. Yeah, well, you know, the Shintaro, which was um, obviously uh, most people listening today might not know what it, but it was a black and white Japanese um, show about uh, the samurai versus the Egan Ninja. The samurais were the good guys and the Egan Ninja were the bad. In fact, Tombay, the guy who played Tombay, came to Essendon Airport and there were more people to see him at Essendon Airport than there was to see John Lennon. Ah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, this was, a, this was a thing that we were doing. You know, you were being the samurai, you know, samurai swords were gumsticks and then, you know, a few and years later, there's Johnny, you know, he's, yeah. he's, he's fighting for real. So I could have been in that situation but for a, a chance of fate. David, unfortunately, we're going to have to end the interview there. Um, it is, uh, the, the novel is Dreaming the Enemy, the author David Metzenden, and it's an Alan and Unwin publication. So, David, thanks for coming in today. Oh, look, it's been a pleasure and... I really appreciate the, the chance to talk about it. I enjoyed writing it. I hope it... Well, enjoy is probably not quite the right word, but okay. thank you for your time. Thank you.